0: Welcome to the New Books and Poetry Podcast. I am your host, Jen Fitzgerald. I'm thrilled to embark on this relationship with you, the listener, and endeavor to bring you the best of new poetry for years to come. I could think of no better inaugural guest than Brooklyn-based poet Jason Koo, who is joining me to discuss his new collection. I'd like to offer a brief biography before. Jason Koo was born in New York City and grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. He is the author of two collections of poetry, America's Favorite Poem, CNR Press 2014, and Man on Extremely Small Island, CNR Press 2009, winner of the De Novo Poetry Prize and the Asian American Writers Workshop Members' Choice Award for the Best Asian American Book of 2009. He has won fellowships for his work from the National Endowment for the Arts, Vermont Studio Center, and New York State Writers Institute. An assistant professor of English at Quinnipiac University, who is also the founder and executive director of Brooklyn Poets, a nonprofit organization celebrating and cultivating the poets, poetry, and literary heritage of Brooklyn, where he lives. Thank you, Jason, for joining me. Um, I figured we would start this podcast with some background personal information, if that's okay. Sure. So what part of New York City were you born in?
1: Uh, I was born in Manhattan at uh, Beth Israel Hospital. Okay.
0: Did you live there as a, as a baby or an infant? Uh,
1: yeah, we were there for, uh, I think we actually lived in the Bronx for a couple of years. I'm not sure exactly when we moved. I think I was about two and a half, maybe three. And then from there we moved to Toledo, Ohio, where my dad got a new job. That's where my little sister was born. And then eventually, I think in right before fourth grade, we moved to Cleveland. Yeah. And from there, I lived there through the rest of my high school years. I moved around a lot, or I changed schools a lot because my dad kept getting different jobs. Um, So between third and fourth, fourth and fifth, (laughs) fifth and sixth, and then also eighth and ninth grade, I changed schools which probably made me become a poet because I was constantly feeling (laughs) alone. And Cleveland definitely helped with that too, just feeling like you're kind of a loser (laughs) (laughs) because the teams are always losing. I became a really big baseball fan when we finally moved to Cleveland, Um, which was simultaneously a way for me to feel community because you're part of the sports community that's really diehard and passionate and yet at the same time to feel totally lonely (laughs) because (laughs) – uh, I was kind of the only one like obsessed with them that I knew so it was a sort of a weird paradoxical experience of feeling tapped into a community abstractly but like experientially feeling very lonely about it
0: yeah and that's
1: always losing too so that's <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it must have been a relief to come back to New York and finally be able to root for some winners I imagine
1: well it's my root for them because he has, <laughs> that's a dire you don't, you don't change allegiance that's that's a fake sports fan <laughs> So I can root for Brooklyn because it's uh, a a new team and it feels like my home here. And it's not New York, whereas I could never root for a New York team, like I could never root for the Yankees, or because they're just our rivals, you know, they're the hated Yankees. <laughs> if Brooklyn had a baseball team, I could root for them for sure.
0: Yeah, well, they have the Cyclones, right?
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I like the Cyclones. I've yeah. been to the games down there. That's always fun.
0: Yeah, they're always up against our Staten Island Yankees, so that's a, a pretty good rivalry. Some of those games.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely they're rooted against the, even the Staten Island.
0: Um, so you only have one younger sister?
1: I also have an older sister. She was born in uh, St. Paul. We first lived in, when my parents came over to America, they first lived in Minnesota. Uh, my older sister was born. Then they moved to New York very soon after that, where I was born, and then to Ohio. And they, they're still in Ohio now.
0: So when did you realize that you wanted to write poetry? Was was it in Cleveland? Was it amidst all the moving?
1: Uh, yeah, it was pretty late. Um, I didn't really seriously begin writing until my freshman year of college. Uh, I think the seeds were planted. My... Like, in the middle of high school, maybe between my sophomore and junior years, I wasn't writing poetry yet, but um, my mom, in an effort to improve my SAT verbal score, sort of classic Asian mothering move, uh, she sent me to these, uh, I went to these, like, summer nerd camps. Uh, There was a a group or an organization called CTY, which stands for Center Center for Talented Youth, it's a Johns Hopkins program. It's a really great program for um, nerds. <laughs> and so you uh, go to these programs. These, they're held at different colleges. Uh, so the ones I went to when were in Pennsylvania, there was one in Carlisle and one in Lancaster. And she signed me up for these uh, creative writing classes as a way to like improve my reading and writing skills. Uh, ended up backfiring on <laughs> just like, She just wanted me to test well, but I eventually became really interested in writing. Um, and for me, it was there was a lot of factors involved because I was a pretty lonely kid and pretty sheltered. I didn't really go out a lot. Um, so this was an exciting way to meet girls <laughs> <laughs> who I discovered were really interested in creative writing and really interested in like books and stuff like that. So uh, I'd always been like a math and science guy, so the more I got into these classes, and I made, you know, I didn't just meet girls, but I made some really good friends, one of whom became my best friend, he's still my best friend today, that I met in uh, 1992 in Carlisle at one of these camps. Uh, So back then I was writing more fiction, and I just kind of got more into the idea of writing, like that it was cool, that... uh, People liked it. <laughs> it was a, ma- a way to meet people, um, and then, uh, and I, I guess I started like people started to tell me that they liked what I was doing. I mean, even though it was like all oh, probably terrible, uh, but you know that that sort of like encouragement helps. Like my friends, my teachers were telling me that. So when I got back to my own high school, uh, I started becoming more conscious of myself as a as a writer, perhaps. So, and then my senior year in high school, I had a really uh, great teacher, uh, my AP English teacher, whose name was Nancy Lerner. She, uh, one of my best teachers ever. It was just very encouraging, very smart. And I think the book that really got me, I think, serious about literature as opposed to just writing, uh, because before that I was like writing these stories, like I was writing a baseball novel. someone <laughs> thought it was a baseball novel. Uh, but not really thinking of it as literature, just thinking of it as um, writing stories and having fun. Mm -hmm. Then we read Hamlet my senior year, and that book changed the way I thought about uh, writing because for the first time it seemed to me possible that all the things that my English teachers had been telling me that there were meanings in texts, which I always thought was ludicrous. I just thought, like, the writer didn't mean to put these things in that we're talking about. It's just ridiculous to to be interpreting these these texts as if the writer meant something or possibly meant several things. But when you read Hamlet, it seems like the text is talking to itself. It seemed for the first time like I was reading a text that was self-conscious about itself. It was fascinating, like, and every line seemed to have potentially, you know multiple meanings.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. I think that the thing with English majors is you realize just how magic it truly is and that when you can understand that you know, the story goes below the page and you unlock that it, it just you become enamored quickly.
1: Yeah. So I started getting into the idea of writing to create meaning and then I think you know probably because Hamlet was in verse I started getting more interested in poetry. I started writing some and that year of high school, you know, again, it wasn't very good. Uh, and then I got to college and I had a, a, a friend in my hall who was an upper class and was really interested in poetry. Didn't write it, but read a lot of it. Uh, so hanging out with him, I started realizing how much I hadn't read. So I started reading more poetry. I started reading poets like, uh, Whitman and Hart Crane and the Bishop and John Ashbery. These, this was the year I discovered all these poets. That's
0: great.
1: And uh, that, especially Ashbery, that that kind of got me into writing what I thought were real poems. <laughs> uh, and then by my sophomore year, I was pretty serious about it. I was writing a lot of poems. And, and then my junior year, I started taking some some writing classes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty cool how your experience with writing has been one that has brought you closer to people. And like you said, you've had friends since 92. Um, yeah. I've always found writing to be such a solitary and sometimes isolating endeavor. So it's really neat that you've had a different experience with that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's obviously simultaneously very lonely and then uh, sort of like you feel a community. But you're right. In some ways, and perhaps that's what's behind Brooklyn Poets, Like because of the way I came to it, I think, for me, it's always felt like a gateway to community rather than just a way to be alone.
0: Yeah. Um, good. I actually wanted to talk um, about Brooklyn Poets. Can you tell us how it came about?
1: Uh, sure, yes. A little bit of a long story. I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> uh, it actually began as an idea for just teaching private workshops. Uh, I was teaching at Lehman College in Sweeney up in the Bronx for a couple of years. And I was, uh, I had a temporary full-time gig there to direct their graduate, uh, literature program. Mm-hmm. And it was a two-year thing. And at the end of it, I thought that, that I was going to get a tenure track offer, perhaps, uh, the chair liked me, the dean liked me, and they were, you know, the chair was telling me, like, we've created this line for you. There has to be a national search and whatever, but, you know, obviously you're, you're a front runner for the position. Um. And then I didn't even get interviewed for the position because uh they decided that they needed to hire a fiction writer instead, so they just thought there was no point in even talking to me. Which, you know, was debatable <laughs> whether there was a point or not. Um, so I started scrambling because that was the middle of my last year there and um you know, I wasn't sure I was going to get a job. I had a couple interviews at MLA. I didn't get a campus visit. So it started looking more and more like I was just going to have to make ends meet somehow, like finding adjunct work or something. But as we all know, adjunct work, you know, is terrible. It pays almost nothing. So I started developing this idea to teach private workshops because I'd always thought, why do you need a middleman when you're teaching workshop? Why not construct a set of workshops that you teach privately in your own home and then you can teach the things that you want to teach and the ways that you want to teach them outside of any kind of institutional constraints? Mm-hmm. And then I got this job at Quinnipiac University pretty late in the spring and so I didn't need to teach these workshops anymore. <laughs> but I'd already, done, I'd already done all this work I really invested a lot of time and and energy into it. And I had the name. Like, I came up with the name as I was trying to think of what to call these workshops. And I thought it would be, you know, really cool to call it Brooklyn Poets or something like that. And when I looked around online, I was just thinking I would see something like that already. But no one had taken that name. Hmm. Uh, So it just seemed like it really, you know, kind of catches in the ear. And it just seemed like it could be something so even after I got this job, I was thinking, well, what if we made it more of a uh, community organization kind of thing? Because that's what it sounds like anyway. It doesn't sound like a private thing. Yeah. Uh, and then I just kind of went with it. Like I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And then it was uh, May thirty first, Walt Whitman's birthday, and I just thought, you know what? The hell with it. Let's just <laughs> let's just start this and see what happens. Like I'll I'll, you know, take out the URL for this brooklynpoets.org, and uh, I'll start teaching a workshop in the summer. So I started advertising for a workshop I developed. Uh, I started a blog on Tumblr, uh, kind of related to Brooklyn Poets and Poetry. At first, it was all about the history of Brooklyn Poetry. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like I didn't really imagine at that point like how big it would become. And there was a lot of pain involved as I tried to make it into a nonprofit. Like I didn't realize just how difficult it is to begin a nonprofit in New York City. Like oh, how yeah. much time it takes, how much planning it takes, how many constraints there are around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was kind of just like walking blindly because I was I was passionate about the idea.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I always believed in the idea. And some of my favorite poets like Hart Crane and Walt Whitman and Auden had lived in the neighborhood that I was living in at that point. At that point, I had moved to Brooklyn Heights. Uh, so I was constantly surrounded by this history and wanting to celebrate that. And uh, we'd already been doing a reading series. It wasn't called the Brooklyn Poets Reading Series, but I had started a reading series at Studio 10, uh, just like my own reading series. And then we shifted it to become the Brooklyn Poets Reading Series. And I knew some people like like uh, Dottie, like Dottie Lasky, who were... Also, adjuncting at the time and looking for work. So, I got her to come on board, and she taught uh, one of our first workshops. And then I started expanding the faculty. You know, I knew there were a lot of people looking for, for work, for teaching work. We started doing things like paying our posts to read for our reading series, which is something I'd always wanted to do. Nice and and then I had the t-shirts idea. That was, like, a pretty early idea. I just thought, as a baseball fan, I had this visions like, this sounded like a baseball team will have these, like, amazing t-shirts with, like, close names on them. So from the very beginning, like, once I had the name, a lot of the ideas started just kind of getting generated in my head one after another. So I knew it was going to be a really big thing if I just had the patience to develop it. And then with the bridge, like we, you know, as we were talking to developers about building a website for Book and Poets, we eventually came up with this whole other website idea, basically like a social network for poets. And it just it just kept getting bigger and bigger in ways that were exciting to me, but also made me really uncomfortable because, <laughs> like, I wasn't sure I had the skill set for it. I also didn't know if I had the patience. But I think it came at the right time for me because I had already finished my my second manuscript, and I'd already, like, gotten my press to uh, approve it for publication. So I was kind of in a time where, like, you know, I was I didn't feel like a lot of pressure to write new poems, and I was starting a new job. In some ways, that was easier because there wasn't as much pressure on me to do things like service, mm-hmm. um, and I just moved to Brooklyn Heights, so it was a kind of confluence of of factors that I think created the perfect storm for me to do this insane thing, <laughs> starting a nonprofit with no previous nonprofit experience. Uh, yeah. I'm just kind of learning a lot of things on the fly. And now I've kind of developed a lot of skills I didn't know I have, like how to design t-shirts, how to design a website, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we tap into a need that we felt personally. And it isn't until we bring it to the surface that we realize that a lot of other people had that need too. Yeah. And we've definitely, you know, risen to the occasion. Yeah, thank
1: yeah.
0: you. Uh, what do you see for the future of Brooklyn Poets? <laughs> <laughs> a lot more
1: time <laughs> chewing stuff on my part. I mean, in some ways, it's be, it's become nice because now it's it's fully formed as an organization. I have faculty members. I have we have a slightly bigger board. There are interns. I have there are people helping me out, and I kind of have a grasp of all of our programs, like most of our programs are in place now, and I, I have a pretty good sense of how to run them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so those kinds of things don't don't take up that much of my time or consciousness anymore, but there are other things like, honestly, just like updating our, our photo blog on Tumblr, which we call it the B.I.G. blog, that's become a little bit of a, <laughs> a burden, like things like Instagramming, which... you know, when we started, like, that was also when Instagram started, so that was another kind of confluence of factors, like, that was a big way for us to kind of develop our social footprint and just create, like, a huge base of images that we could use for our posters and just, like, it's just a kind of advertising, but now, like, I don't do that as much either, like, I'm just not as into it as I used to be, so there are certain things like that I'm trying to kind of let go of, uh, and I know now that I'm going to have to devote a lot of my energy to the bridge, which is being developed right now, Uh, and it's supposed to be done the first iteration by the end of June, so I'm looking forward to the summer as the time to to work out all the kinks of that, you know, bring in students and mentors into that site, uh, and hopefully by September, the Broken Book Festival, that'll be fully up and running, and I think once that's up and running, I think it's going to change a lot of... A lot about how we see our organization, or like where our priorities are, how it runs, because it's going to develop this whole network of people outside of Brooklyn.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and a, a lot of exciting things that can happen. I think in a lot of ways, it can change the ways that students and teachers of poetry interact. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I'm kind of like waiting and seeing. Like this is the next chapter. Like I've I've been trying to build up Brooklyn Poets as just a local organization first. Like just our base nonprofit model, which I think is now fully operational. And now I'm trying to develop this, this beyond Brooklyn part of the company. And then once that's up and running, like (laughs) then if that's running smoothly and I'm not going insane, I think it'll it'll be pretty cool to see where the organization's at at that point. Because ultimately the dream for me is that it develops enough revenue. And once we get our 501 C3, which we're applying for now, um, Ultimately, my dream is to just be able to work for Brooklyn Poets and pay myself for that. But
0: Yeah, that would be great. Sure. Um, we're going to put a link to Brooklyn Poets on this podcast so that listeners can check it out. And I think that if you could just rebrand and have the Brooklyn Bridge be named the Brooklyn Poets Bridge, that you guys would be good to go. Like That's sure. all that, that's all you need to do.
1: <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> um. Okay, so I was hoping that maybe we could start talking about your collection, America's Favorite Poem, which I have had the pleasure to read, and let me tell you, I really enjoyed it. Okay. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about how it came into being as a collection?
1: Okay, uh, let me think.
0: Was it one of the um, one of those collections where you find yourself working on you know various poems and then you understand that they come together? Um, or cohesive afterwards, or is this something that you had in mind that you worked towards?
1: Yeah, maybe a, a little of both. Um, I mean, definitely the way that I worked for both that I worked for both my collections was I was writing poems, and then eventually the the organizational principle or structure came into view. I think for this book, a lot faster than my first book. Um, This book really only took about a year and a half to write, which really surprised me because the first book, I mean, I was younger and I was still in school, but that that took a process of, I think, six or seven years to fully come into the form that it it became for the publication. With this book, uh, I actually had the title a long time ago when I was living in Houston, I think in 2000. Somewhere around then, I wrote a poem that I titled America's Favorite Poem. Uh, it was all about consumerism, which I was thinking about a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then later, I also wrote another poem that when I moved to North Carolina that I also titled America's Favorite Poem. I thought this poem was a little better than the other one, even though I published the other one. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know what? I like this poem better, so let's just use the same title. <laughs> like I always liked the title and thought of it potentially as a book title. Uh, I thought of the title a long time ago. I was just sitting in a diner and looking at a Heinz ketchup bottle and saw that they called their ketchup America's Favorite Ketchup, which I thought was so ridiculous (laughs) that they just decided to call it America's Favorite Ketchup. But I thought that would be a great title for a poem and a book about Americanism, American consumerism, all those things that go into it. Mm. I think I thought for my first book that that's the kind of book that I would write. Uh, And actually, there was an earlier version of that book called American Limousine. But when I went to Missouri, I started, for my PhD, I started writing a lot more poems about isolation and alienation. Mm -hmm. And all of my friends were telling me that 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 really was the book, and then I should call it uh, Man on an Extremely Small Island because it just made a lot more thematic sense. And I think they were right. Uh, But those... Other ideas, those other interests were still there. And then when I moved to New York, it seemed like those poems kind of kicked into gear. So I started writing a lot, a lot of poems about uh, not just consumerism, but more about what I think of as like uh, self imperialism. Mm-hmm. Like the ways in which the American self, uh, in some ways, especially the American poetic self, uh, is complicit in in American imperialism in ways that I think a lot of people don't recognize. Like simply going online and creating your like social footprint on Facebook and Twitter, I feel like are ways of extending your own empire. And I think yeah, absolutely. or even just publishing a book. And but what I think is interesting about a lot of poets these days is is they don't always recognize that, you know, there's a kind of default position to critique Imperialism and ideas of power, and just say that you know, you know, that's terrible and it's obviously bad, and of course, they are bad. Um, But there are ways in which we all kind of are complicit in it, and uh, we're participating in it in ways that are perhaps a little less harmful, but still,
0: (laughs) yeah, absolutely. I know what you're talking about. Um, I believe Mary Baraka said that even choosing not to be political or social in your poems is a political and social decision. It's an act. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. So, I was hoping that maybe you could read a couple of poems. But um, to start with, um, one of my favorites here was Every Atom Belonging to Me. It's on um, page 25 of the collection. Would you mind reading that? Sure.
1: So this poem takes its title, as you probably know, from the beginning of uh, Whitman's Song of Myself. Mm -hmm. For every atom belonging to me. Sure, now you can walk, holding your hand a spoon, a ball, a book. Bite into a carrot, nicking the tip cleanly into your mouth. Pissed drunk into a urinal shifting like penguins waddling through huge blue districts of ice. Swear at your mother, God, the football team. Swagger with self, the center of a sphere. Needing no help, hold molten on your own. But once you were nothing. All you ate was milk. You spent your days wriggling on your back, your head so heavy it pinned you to the floor. Your mother picked you up, held you, helped you. You can't imagine how much she helped you, how much tenderness voided you from the start.
0: Thank you very much. Um, I, I chose this because of Walt Whitman, obviously, because I see so much of him in this entire collection, in these long, sprawling lines, um, I, I always felt like his lines were kind of like his arms outstretched, reaching out to the world to just, like, grab it and hug it, and that's kind of how I feel when I read your pieces in this collection. I mean, how has Walt Whitman influenced you? Uh,
1: yeah, obviously, in very big ways, uh, Yeah, he's always a poet that I've loved. I'm well, maybe not at first. In high school, I read him. I just kind of just didn't really get it. Uh, and then I read him my freshman year in college, and it just kind of took over. Uh, I think the original Leaves of Grass in 1855 is still in my mind the greatest American book. There's just something unleashed in that collection, particularly the first, what what later was called Song of Myself. There's just uh, like a mythic poetic presence that he was never even able to kind of reattain in his later work. Uh, And I've always wanted that, that voice and the way the consciousness moves. Uh, It seems to move without boundary, but there's a kind of natural, inevitable unfolding to the the meditations that he's having, the things that he's looking at. And, and it's all so effortless. And I mean, he's writing in a mode that is unprecedented, (laughs) completely breaking the frame of what was thought of as a poem up until that point, completely reinventing not only American poetry, but all poetry. Mm -hmm. And just doing it in this amazingly effortless way, completely self-assured, so confident, um, and able to be really expansive and inclusive while also really small at the same time so if you look at some of the great lines of song of myself like the attention to detail within the specific phrases of that poem is incredible like there are incredible images just packed into these lines i think everyone assumes oh yeah he's this big expansive poet and i think when a lot of people try to imitate that they end up just sounding really general and abstract whereas whitman is incredibly precise and detailed and that's always what I've wanted. Like, I kind of wanted to have it both ways. I wanted to have a big, expansive poetry while at the same time having a really condensed phrase making and imagery. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to do. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm still trying to do it, so... No,
0: I, I think that you've succeeded in a big way because it's one of the first things i picked up because um, I didn't, you know, obviously didn't read anything about your book before your book so that I wouldn't be biased, but when, after I finished the collection and I went and looked to see, you know, your blurbs and, and what others were saying about it, and I was like, oh, good, everybody else got Whitman, too. <laughs> That's exactly where my mind was headed, and, and you do it really well. Um, the next poem that I wanted you to read is a bit longer. Um, it's struck from the float forever held in solution. Um, one of my favorite things about this poem is what you were just talking about with the lines seem expansive and sprawling, but within them, there's such attention to detail and sound that it's easy to be enraptured by it. Could, could you read that for us? Sure.
1: Thank you. Just from the float forever held in solution. how comfort was conniving to make me content with an almost life, the life I sort of wanted to have. And now I'm blasted out of sort of into the sun tonnage of the city. Look at the bridge accelerating against the sky, taunting the tourists with their tiny cameras on the puny pier. It dares me to think of it as a mere amenity, though this was the life, ever since I first read Hart Crane and saw him on the roof of 110 Columbia Heights boasting the Brooklyn Bridge as his background. He came with nothing and left buildings. I came, even reduced by you, with much more and walk around his old neighborhood like it's my inheritance. I walk past 110 Columbia Heights where Jehovah's Witnesses' building now stands. I see through their watchtower to Crane's broken tower. Out of the rubble of his life, just one phrase's swift, unfractioned idiom annihilates their literature. I look down at the gleaming musculature of the East River and imagine Whitman, curious in the crowd on Robert Fulton's ferry, imagining me. Did he imagine me, most particular me, "'the only son of Korean immigrant parents crossing with the others on the ferry? "'I don't think I would have occurred to him, which is no offense, "'as even the Brooklyn Bridge did not occur to him. "'You could say Roebling and then Crane out-imagined Whitman, "'but he had the right the original idea. "'And you can still feel his presence, my enemies, in the movement of these waters.' The generosity of his imagination rippling to me, not banked by its limits. The kind of generosity you did not extend to me as you imagined my life going nowhere. I try to extend this generosity to you, shamed by Whitman into questioning my enjoyment of the view on this gentrified shore, the reward for what I've done. I could say I'm not as bad as you think, but it's true. I'm worse than you think. Whitman knew this, knew what it was to be evil, how we shouldn't be fooled by any soaring, generous spirit, least of all his, that there was always something evil in it, always something conquering in the creative. That bridge up there, Crane's connective tissue, grand gateway to the West, has evil in it. So many dark patches went into it. So many lives, quite literally, went into it. John Roebling killed by it. Washington Roebling crippled by it confined during construction to the same room on Columbia Heights that crane occupied as he climbed the bridge with his own construction and was killed by it. But his name is now an aria out of it. His dark life made it leap with more life, just as Whitman's life made Fulton's ferry more lasting than a commute, even after the Roeblings Bridge replaced it with this refurbished historic pier, where Whitman's words have washed up to decorate the railings. And now I'm enjoying the sculpted shade reading East Goes West by Young Il-Kang, the heroic father of Korean-American literature, who made his share of enemies when he left his family behind during the Japanese occupation of Korea. First to study Western science in Japan by passing himself off as Japanese, then to flee to New York looking for that same rebirth, that ever revivified life that Crane sought but inexorably unfamiliar, rebuffed by realities Crane never had to deal with, scuffling through a missionary college for a year in Canada, reading David Copperfield out loud to his tutor to gain better command of English, enough to write the first novels in the language by a Korean in America. Kong surely imagined me. He would be proud, I think, to see me living as a poet in Brooklyn Heights, a part of his legacy reading his book. I'm feeling all of them, Whitman, Kong, Crane, move through me, wondering how I got so lucky to live in a precinct of their imagination, then remembering that it was you, my enemies, who got me here. I had to be a little bad for that to happen. So much good has come of such bad that I can't help but worry, don't worry, whether I deserve it, whether I'm not the worst kind of American. Whether whether I'll ever do enough to return what you gave me. Whether I'll screw this up. Whether I'll ever feel like I have enough. Whether I am enough.
0: I love that poem. Thank you. um, The things that I love most about it, uh, the introspection, for one, but also I see it as the poet placing himself on a timeline of poetry, an ethnic, geographic, an artistic lineage. And it's something that I see echoed in your Brooklyn Poets. It's that you're allowing these writers, even if they're transplants to Brooklyn, to place themselves in the literary heritage of that borough. And it's a vast and rich literary heritage. And that's what you're doing in this poem. You're you're placing yourself. Was that your intention?
1: Uh, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, coming through. This was actually the first uh, the first poem I wrote when I moved to Brooklyn Heights. I mean I just thought it was absurd that I got to live there. <laughs> I was uh, I was living in Sunset Park at the time by myself and then I moved in with uh, my girlfriend at the time. So I was able to split the rent and at that time the rents were down. I think it was 2010 2011. Mm-hmm. I think that we moved here and all the rents were down so we were able to get this poem uh, apartment with a really good deal about a block from the promenade Uh, was just an amazing sort of chance (laughs) and ironically I was paying less for my rent here than I was in Sunset Park and I would just walk around just thinking like how is this even possible that I'm living here because it wasn't just that I was living in this nice neighborhood, This this was my dream always to live in this neighborhood that Hart Crane had lived in and that Whitman had lived in and I was walking around thinking, you know, what what have I done to the, to deserve this? And just thinking that, uh, you know, it was, it was in some ways really bad. Like I was part of the dentrification. I was, you know, uh, just too lucky to be doing this. So I thought, well, at the very least I should write some poems that uh, delve into that sense of lineage and, and kind of celebrate it while at the same time as I question it.
0: Mm-hmm. You know. Absolutely. Yeah, um, you know, Brooklyn has changed quite a bit in the past 10 years, for sure. Um, I know that gentrification is a word thrown around a lot over there, and I wonder if a place for artists, you know, whether it be starving artists, struggling artists, artists coming up, um, if that is something that hurts or helps a neighborhood. In your experience, from what you've seen go on in Brooklyn, the influx of, you know, struggling artists and having Brooklyn be more of a literary hub than it ever was. Like, what do you think that means in terms of gentrification?
1: Wait, what is that? Are you asking asking if gentrification helps, or does the influx of starving artists help? Um,
0: Not even hurt or help. Um, More as I know that as Brooklyn has been gentrified on the back of that, or even in front of that rather, there has been a large influx of artists, mostly people who were, um, you know, pushed out of Manhattan due to high rents, or coming from across the country because they think that Brooklyn is this hub. So yeah. having these two things happen concurrently, I don't know if the artistic, Dino you know, movement is being pushed in with gentrification, or if does it even belong there?
1: Yeah. Good questions. Uh, I mean, it's complicated. There are there are many ways in which it's, it's great. And then of course, there are ways in which it's not so great. And these are some of the things I'm trying to explore in the book. Uh, Like, I think there's nothing wrong with, I mean, I shouldn't say there's nothing wrong, but I think, you know, we want to believe in a, in American might, we want to believe in the American imperial self. Like this is the self that Whitman and Crane inhabit in some of their most powerful moments, and this is, this is what gets things like the Brooklyn Bridge built. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an, that's an imperial vision. This, I mean, it's a staggering, powerful work of art, and as I say in that poem, took a lot of destruction to create. I mean, those kinds of works kill lives, uh, not just metaphorically, but literally. Um, and, you know, when you're creating beautiful things, sometimes just this idea of a beautiful community that's going to push people out. It's going to destroy certain things to create others. And that the destruction has always been a part of creation just since the dawn of time, as students like to say, since the dawn of mankind, (laughs) destruction has always been a part of creativity. And I think that, you know, we need to recognize that and in some ways be okay with it. uh, And at least be conscious of it in our own work so that, you know, we don't just go about destroying, but also (laughs) creating. Mm -hmm. I think as long as you're thinking about creating, and trying to build community and try to be aware of people other people uh you can combat some of the i think some of the more corrupt influences of gentrification yeah and i think when people come in and they're just trying to build you know just trying to develop uh luxury apartments you know i think that's one side of gentrification that's that's, that's obviously not so great but you know when you're creating uh really great uh, coffee shops and restaurants and bars where people come together. Like, you know, we a place like 61 local where we do our, our monthly workshop in open mic or Dumbo sky, which Rachel Eliza Griffiths uh, created, which is this amazing event space where poets can feel like they have this backdrop, of the city behind them as they read their poems. And a lot of people can come together. Those are all good things. Um, it's very easy to be cynical about those things. Um, and just say, oh, yeah, I hear all these coffee shops and bars and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and sometimes I'm cynical of those things, too, especially when I see it play out in terms of race. Um, mm-hmm. Like when I go to certain readings in, in Brooklyn, I see a primarily white audience. Uh, that bothers me. Mm-hmm. I try to create a space of Brooklyn Poets where you see lots of different people in the space. Uh, and I feel sometimes like I'm working against certain sort of Uh, I guess, forces of gentrification that I see. Uh, But it's a process, you know, and it's not perfect, but I think when you have a lot of smart people, smart creative people in one place, uh, that I think primarily is always a good thing.
0: Absolutely. It's one of the things that I respect most about Brooklyn Poets is how diverse all of the readings are and all of the gatherings are. I I really respect that. Thanks. You're welcome. Um, So, from a very weighty topic, uh, maybe we could talk briefly about how you employ humor, because you do that a lot. Um, Is it a deliberate literary device that you use in specific instances, or is it simply part of your overall voice?
1: Uh, Yeah, probably more the latter. Uh, I guess I've never really thought of it as a device so much. It's just always been, I think, a part of my natural voice and in fact I think when I was in grad school the advice I was getting mostly from my teachers and my peers was to work against it because they thought that it would always just naturally be there anyway so that I should try to develop the other sides of my voice like I should try to work more towards gravity and darkness because <laughs> like when I was younger I was I was trying to write you know, funny poems, I think, most of the time. I was, in some ways, really influenced by Billy Collins at the time, like the late 90s, the early 21st century. Um, and I think, you know, some of my teachers, like Adam Zagiewski at Houston, were telling me it was too light, which I think was true. I didn't think so at the time, but I think it was true in retrospect. So uh, I tried to sort of – I had to kind of consciously try to cultivate more darkness in my poems. And at first it felt a little weird because I didn't think of myself as having a very dark life. <laughs> uh, and then I moved to Missouri and some really terrible things happened to me I don't know. Uh, relationship-wise. So uh, I just started writing more into that space, which is a lot of what my first book is about. And what was interesting is like, the darker my poems got, the funnier they got, <laughs> uh, which is what people had always told me would happen. Uh, and I kind of just didn't believe it, but it ended up being true. And I really like that space, like that I could be simultaneously really dark and sad and also really funny. Um, I think since then, I think this book is funny, too. It's probably less funny in some ways. I think as I've developed, I've tried to get, I guess, develop other sides of my voice. Like that poem I just read is, I think, more historical Mm -hmm. and more, uh, I don't know, I guess... uh, just a a sort of more mature intellectual voice, like without needing to rely on humor. Like I I feel in some ways like it had become a crutch where I felt like I wasn't really writing one of my poems if it wasn't funny at any point. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to work past that because I think it's still going to be a part of my voice regardless. And I I don't always want to feel like I have to write a funny poem.
0: You know, it's comforting, because you do deal with weighty subject matter, and if you can infuse humor into it, I mean, that's the best way that we humans deal with death and loss and grief. And I, I find it to be refreshing. I mean, I'm never going to look at my own ear the same way again, but that's something that listeners will have to read the book to understand. Um, I wanted you to read one last poem, which... Um, I have to go back and read two or three times, because it seemed like a departure from the collection. It seemed, uh, you know, not, not in the negative way, but, you know, sentimental, like something. Right. Yeah, so um, it's Here Are Your Waters and Your Watering Place, um, 71.
1: Okay, good. It seems like you picked three poems that all take their titles from American poets.
0: I have a theme, I'm not going to lie.
1: That's one of the strategies of the book, actually. You know, it's titled "American Favorite Poems. I thought it would be kind of nifty to have just a lot of the poem titles referencing some of our favorite American poems. In this case, it's uh, Frost's Directive, which is my, one of my favorite poems of all time, definitely. Yes. Here are your waters and your watering place. I love the way you make everything plural. I don't have any underwears left, you say in the morning. No, I don't count sheeps. You want to be as alive as possible, meaning multiple, even in your sleeps. One might be able to count sheep to sleep, but one can't count sheeps. Verbing all over the pasture, leaving orger on the verger. No, orders on the vergers, you would say. They're dropping gums. Teach me how to be less singular. Teach me how to open order, to order, to orchards. I love how you leave waters all over the apartments one by the couch, one on the dining table, two by the kitchen sink. I go past these glasses and suddenly see how thirsty I was, how much of a desert my life is, how much of a camel I've become.
0: This one of my favorite types of poems is a poet in a space. After their beloved has left and them comprehending the space in terms of their beloved and how it's been altered. And that's something that I saw here and I just really loved. I mean, I told you I read it three times over and um, the switch that is made from um, no orders on the verges to the next line. Teach me how to be less singular with, you know, sort of switching to address. It's just a lovely shift in the poem. Do you want to tell me at all about how this came to be?
1: Uh, Yeah, it actually came out of kind of a dark place. (laughs) Uh, I had just, I think I had done something to hurt my girlfriend at the time. And then I wrote two poems. The first poem of the book, American Dream, they were two very sort of like self-critical poems. Well, at least the first one was. Mm -hmm and then this poem became more of a gesture towards i guess healing and really trying to look outward to her as an other and that's i guess if you notice like one of the movements of the book like the whole first section the first half is devoted to the self and the imperial drive in the self and all that you can celebrate at the self and at the same time be wary of and then in the second section trying to sort of showing the fallout of that, like how that can play out in relationships so if you're believing in the self too much. And then as it gets to the end, trying to to heal that by actually going outward to an other and have a, a real sense of awareness of that person and relationship. Um, so this poem in particular, I think, is probably why it stands out uh, right toward the end of that section, is, is really trying to leave, the, I guess you could say, the confines or the obsessions of the self, and actually learn from the other to get into a freer place. And even the style, like, you know, dropping the punctuation mm-hmm. uh, in some ways is a way for me to like, drop a lot of the hyper obsessiveness and, in some ways, constriction. the poems before like trying to get into a freer space and then this this feeds into the kissing you poem which is right after it Mm -hmm. which is a kind of litany of i guess loving you can say or inclusiveness
0: yes absolutely um so i would like to finish the podcast with two questions that i'm hoping can be recurring Um, The first one is, who are you reading right now? Because there is not a vast list of new poets, um, except for this podcast, which seeks to do that. But often, poets rely on each other to find out, you know, who's writing what and how. So who are you reading?
1: Uh, I'm actually reading some people that are not poets. Should I not talk about those people?
0: You can talk about whoever you'd like.
1: Well, I've been reading uh, a lot. A book a lot of people have been reading. Carl Knausgaard's *My Struggle*. I just finished the first volume of that, which was pretty amazing. Mm. Uh, it's a project I've always been interested in writing about, writing obsessively and expansively, and about daily life. Mm. Uh, and now I'm about to start reading Volume Two. I just started reading Lydia Davis's uh, collected stories, which I'm really interested in. I'm trying to think of some poets I've been reading. Um, let me. Th- think. I just read, you know, Roger Reeves' book, King Me, which I loved, and he was uh, brought to read for Brooklyn Poets last month. Great. And let's see, who else? I mean, I love Mary Rufel. I've been, who doesn't? Right. I've <laughs> been writing about her for a while. I just wrote a, a kind of expanded essay about her book, Indeed, I Was Pleased with the World for this really great journal music and literature, which did a retrospective of her work. Um, you know, and everything she's written lately. Madness, Rack, and Honey is great. The Most of it is great. Um, Let's see. You know, last night I read at uh, Goodbye Blue Monday with uh, some really great other poets. It was a really fantastic reading. Uh, So Samson Starkweather was there, whose work I really like. Sally Mao, a young poet, whose first book just came out, I was blown away by her reading. Uh, Peter Friedman, uh, a young poet who's actually taken some of our workshops and uh, performed at our open mic. He doesn't have a book, but he's a really fabulous poet that I'm sure will have a book pretty soon. Another young poet, Madeline Barnes, whose chapbook came out, was just Poet of the Week on our site, has been great. Some of our faculty members, Monica McClure's new book is great. Uh Jenny Zhang, obviously, Lee Stein. I mean, everyone in our faculty, their work I just love. John Murillo is a, is a really fantastic quote that I feel like a lot, not enough people are talking about. Um, Melissa Broder, obviously, Dottie mm-hmm. Lasky is fantastic. Um, Debbie Kwan, Jeff Simpson. And, I mean, just go through our poets roster.
0: Yeah. Oh, good. So it's all on the Brooklyn Poets website. We can find these? Yeah. Anyone
1: featured on our site is definitely a poet that uh, I'm interested in and like quite a bit. Fantastic. Uh, yeah.
0: Okay, good. Yes, we will have that link up for listeners. Um, and for a final question, what else would you pursue if you couldn't write poetry?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, that's easy. I would have been a baseball player if I could play <laughs> At all. Uh, I mean, I felt like I had a little bit of talent, but you know, not really, not much. Uh, that was always. That was really, I think, my first love when I was in high school. Like, I really just fell in love with the game. And if I had, if I'd had, had the the body type and the talent, uh, I probably never would have became a poet. I think I think you'll find a lot of writers, at least male writers, that say this uh, that they would have preferred to be a baseball player if they had the talent. <laughs>
0: Well, I can say that poetry is very grateful that you do not. <laughs> um, thank you so much thank for you. for spending this time with us. And um, like I said, please go on to the website and look at Brooklyn Poets. And thank you all for tuning in.